Okay, so last session today is our post-game debrief. The fourth part of the Overcomers Road. We've gone from mission to the scouting report to the game plan, and now we're in the locker room. We're having some post-game debrief, which is going to be some Q&A. So if you have questions, you can write them down, think about them, and you can give them to them. And by the way, this is going to be a little more of an interactive session, so I don't want any sitting on your hands today. You can have comments on some of the the, the questions, and I've, I've written down some questions that I'm commonly asked or students have submitted in the past, so we'll have some questions, and if you have some of your own, you can think as well. Before we get to the first question, let me ask you a question. What do you think are the, the two critical things, attitudes of our heart, that are behind every decision or motivations behind every decision we make in life? What motivates us to make any given decision? For instance, if you're someone who likes to drive your car fast, who likes to drive their car fast? A little more interaction. Okay, we got a lot of fast drivers here today. Now, if I asked you if you like to drive your car fast, why didn't you drive your car 100 miles an hour on the way to school this morning? How would you answer that question? You like to drive fast, right? You love driving fast, so why didn't you? Because you wouldn't make it to school, so you were afraid of something. You were afraid you'd get in an accident. You were afraid you get, you were fearful of getting pulled over and losing your license. He just articulated the two motivations for everything we do in life are either love or fear, okay? So he loves driving fast, okay? That's good love, but he had a greater fear of getting in an accident or getting caught by the police, so he chose to not drive 100 miles an hour on the way to school, and that's how it is for every decision we face in life. It's always a a ratio of love. You know, we may love to you know, let's say go out and have fun at night and, and, and get involved. We maybe go to a party. But when there's things going on at the party like drinking and immorality and so forth, then we have a decision to make. Do we love going out and being with their friends or are we going to love God more than that? It's always a quotient of love or fear is also a good motivation too. So you can think of that in terms of when you make decisions that ask yourself, Am I going to love God more in this moment or am I going to love doing what I want to do? It's a good way to think in your mind of when you have a decision to make in life, think in terms of what do I love, what do I fear? Or the situation could be with fear. Like, you know, I love going to this particular party, but I don't want to disappoint my friends. Is your fear of your friends greater than your love of the Lord? It's always this ratio of love and fear. So think about that in terms of making decisions. Okay, on to the first question. Here we go. This is the love and, love and fear part of it. A good motivation to be an overcomer is your fear of the physical consequences of sin greater than your love of sinful pleasure. Let's review these quickly. A better motivation is your fear of the spiritual consequences of offending God is greater than your love of sinful pleasure. And then your last one is the best motivation is your love and fear of God is greater than your love and fear of anyone or anything else. Does everyone understand that, that concept? I'm seeing some nodding heads, so you're getting that. It's a good way to think of terms of what should motivate you to be an overcomer. Okay, first question. Mr. Wheaton, I have a rare sleep disorder called speakerlepsy, which causes me to fall asleep as soon as the speaker hits the stage. Could you summarize everything you've said in the last few sessions in two minutes before I doze off? Thanks. Okay, I'll try to do that. Summarize everything I said in two minutes. Number one. High school and college and beyond are perilous for professing Christian students. 100% of that say that when they go off to college will say they're a born-again Christian. 
50% will say they are no longer a born-again Christian after they're there. Number two, yes, the pillars of peril are predictable and difficult, but they're overcomable, if that's a word. Number three, you must be a possessor of a saving faith, a genuine saving faith, not just a professor. Because when you have a genuine saving faith, that means you will have the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you, giving you the power to be able to be an overcomer. And number four, you must discipline yourself to raise your spiritual GPA as you renew your mind and you love and fear God more than you love and fear anyone or anything else, you will be able to grow in your faith, you'll be able to manage your friendships, and you'll be able to utilize the authorities in your life. So, commit to your mission to be an overcomer. Number two, know the scouting report, the pillars of peril. Number three, execute your game plan, the fundamentals of the faith, your spiritual GPA. And number four, Go out and impact your world for Christ. Have fun in college. I mean, don't think of it as like, I got a huddle in my room under my bed. No, have fun in college. Just don't have your fun be defined as having to sin in the process. Which leads in to the next question. Mr. Wheaton, no sex, no booze, no spring break in Cancun. Sounds like you're one of those fundamentalists. No fun, all damn, and no mental. What would you like me to do? Pull the shades, read the Bible, and not leave my room. Signed, bored already. Okay? Never said that in the past few sessions. I never intend you to do this when you go to college is to, is to cordon yourself off into your dorm room and never come outside. The Bible says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And interestingly enough, his commandments, they are not burdensome. In other words, God's commandments are for our good and our blessing and our joy in life. They're not meant to you know, put a wet blanket on what we want to do in life. So you need to redefine. If your definition of fun must include sin, you need to redefine your definition of fun. You know, since I was saved when I was 24, I've had all kinds of fun in my life. I love life. Life's been good. But I've had to redefine my definition of fun to not have to include sin. So enjoy life, yet without sinning in the process. Is it possible to be in a a dating relationship when you're at a time in your life that you're maybe close to being ready without being involved in sexual immorality? Of course it is. Is it possible to enjoy time with friends without drugs and alcohol? Of course it is. So do you have fun at this high school? Does it have to involve sin? Of course it doesn't. So the world's definition of fun always involves sin with fun. Satan always shows us the beautiful beginning of the way. He doesn't show us the bitter end. So redefine your definition of fun and enjoy your life. Enjoy the gifts and the blessing God gives you without sinning in the process. Next question. Mr. Wheaton, you're pretty harsh on the dangers of secular colleges. Is it better just to go to a Christian college? The answer to this question is not necessarily. You need to match up your spiritual GPA to the right post-high school option for you. And there's a whole chapter in the book about there's a spiritual GPA test you can take in the book that shows you where you are right now in your spiritual GPA. And when you get the results of that little quiz you take in the book, that'll help you be able to decide on what kind of college would be good for you. Because if you have sort of a low spiritual GPA now and you need to improve that, you're not going to want to go to a college where there's going to be all kinds of opposition to your faith. It's going to be a very a bad mismatch. 
okay? But if you have a really good spiritual GPA, you can go anywhere to college, and you're going to be able to be an overcomer on campus. Now, going to college isn't necessarily a constitutional requirement in case you haven't figured that out. There are lots of options for students after they graduate from high school. You can go to college, of course. You can go into the military. You can take a a gap year. You can work. There are lots of things you can do. But again, it comes down to your spiritual GPA. If you have a high GPA, you can go anywhere, even to the elite, secular, liberal colleges. You'll be able to do well there. If you have a medium GPA, maybe you want to think more in terms of a, a public school where you can get involved in a good campus Christian group while you're there. Or maybe go to a Christian, year, a Christian school or take a gap year. Or if you have a lower GPA, you know, you're going to have trouble even if you stay at home. So you need to focus on getting right with the Lord and having raising your spiritual GPA. So that was how I would answer that particular question. It's not always better to go to a Christian college. People often think of my book and, oh, so therefore, just go to a Christian college and you'll be safe. And that's not the case. We know that students who go to Christian colleges who don't have a high spiritual GPA don't necessarily do well. Okay, any questions from the audience before we go on to the next question? Okay. Mr. Wheaton, a lot of my friends, Christian friends, listen to secular rock music and hip-hop music and see movies with graphic scenes and graphic, obscene, or profanity language. Is this any big deal? I get asked this question quite a bit. The answer is simple from Ephesians 5. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We went over this verse in the issue of the second pillar of peril with drugs and alcohol. But look at the next verse. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Music is a lot more of a powerful influence than any of us realize, for better or for worse. If you listen to music that's honoring to God and exalting to Christ and exalts your heart to worship Him, that's a powerful positive influence on your life. But if you choose, again, a decision, if you make the decision to listen to the kind of music the world has to offer that talks about sex outside of marriage and drugs and nihilism, just nothingness in life and hopelessness, whether you believe it or not, it's going to have an impact on you. I know that that's how it was in my life before I came to faith in Christ. I used to listen to all kinds of worldly music. and It had a very negative impact on my life and how I thought. But when I was saved, I began to start listening to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that really changed the way I live my life to a certain extent. Does the music we listen to direct our focus to God and make you love Him more, or does it appeal to your flesh? That's really the decision, the question that you need to answer when it comes to choosing music in your life. Does it direct my worship up, or does it direct my worship down to me, to my own situation in life? When it comes to movies, this is another, I think, a powerful influence in our life too. It says this in Psalm 101, To you, O Lord, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. You know, I heard someone say in a, in a video recently, a Christian video, you know, they were asking people on the street who profess to be Christians, well, do you go to R-rated movies? And they'd say, well, yeah. And the, and the, and the interviewer said, well, what about seeing sex scenes in R-rated movies? Isn't that a problem to you? And he, he said, well, you know, it's not me. It's not really a big of a deal. And then the interviewer said, well, is it a problem to you if you would walk into your neighbor's front yard and look through the window and look at 
man and a woman engaging in a sexual relationship inside the house, would that be wrong? He said, well, of course it would be wrong. You'd be a peeping Tom. You'd be taking in something you shouldn't be doing. Well, how is that different than going to an R-rated movie and looking through the window of what they show you on screen? I think it makes a really good point of what we talked about yesterday, making no provision for the flesh. When we go and take things in through our eyes, whether through movies, whether through pornography, which is one which one Christian leader has called the greatest moral threat to Christians in 2,000 years, pornography. That's how much of a scourge it is upon someone's soul. I think we need to be very careful that we make no provision for the flesh and we'll set nothing wicked before our eyes. Next question. Mr. Wheaton, you talked about choosing friends. But what about like friends of the, well, opposite sex, as in boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, dating. This is a question that usually some of the heads start to come up and listen a little more attentively now. There's a whole chapter on dating in the University of Destruction. I didn't actually talk about it purposely because there's a chapter that's well written out and you'll be able to find out a lot more about it. But let me just give you a couple little tips on the issue of dating. Let me define dating. Just get a definition, a working definition here. You can call it courtship or dating. The way I think of dating as a one-on-one exclusive relationship, okay? So that if the person you were dating went out and did something with someone else, that you would feel like, hey, that's not right. I have an exclusive one-on-one relationship with that person. That's what I consider to be dating. And so in the book, I talk about dating in terms of two things. You really should only get into these types of dating or courtship relationships where it's exclusive one-on-one relationships at a point in your life when you're actually ready to be married, let's say within a year. So in other words, what is the point of dating in an exclusive one-on-one relationship when you're not even close to being in a point in your life where you are ready or could be married? There's no point. All it does is it puts you in a situation and opens you up to excessive temptation that you don't need in your life. In this pattern of going through dating, breakup, dating, breakup, dating, breakup with six girls or six guys, by the time you're 22, you've conditioned yourself to date, break up, date, break up. What do you think that leads to when you get married? What does that make you more susceptible to do when you get married? Divorce, exactly right. You've really conditioned yourself to have a broken heart. And so the advice I give in the book is that dating's not wrong, but just prepare yourself for marriage someday. Grow in your faith. Raise your spiritual GPA. Okay, And then when you're at a time in your life where you think, you know what, I'm getting close to a period in my life where I'm ready for marriage both spiritually, emotionally, financially, educationally, maybe I want to finish college. And then it's at those times when you're ready spiritually in all those different ways to be dating, then you can start considering the the prospect of dating someone one-on-one exclusively. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have friends of the opposite sex before them. and It doesn't mean you can't go out on, quote, dates and groups or so forth but it's these one-on-one exclusive relationships before a time where you could possibly be married that I think can cause excessive temptation in your life. Okay, next question. Mr. Wheaton, I hear what you're saying, but I've already messed up in my life. I look at pornography, I drink alcohol and occasionally smoke pot, and I have no relationship with my parents. What do I do now? This is the question like, you know what, I, I hear what you're saying, I agree with you, But wait, I'm already way past all what you're saying. I've fallen into sin many times in my life, and I feel like I'm enslaved to certain things like pornography and drinking and so forth. What do I do now? The Lord, Psalm 103 said, is 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. There's the motivation of fear, by the way, again, fear and love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows us. He is mindful that we are but dust. And the answer to this question is, God is a God of restoring lives. I mean, we've all sinned. This is what the good news of the gospel is all about. And this is, by the way, realizing that you're a sinner, as this question implies, indicates you are closer than you think to having your life turn around. The, the problem is with people who don't ask this question, who don't say, you know, gee, uh, who say, I'm involved in porn and drinking and all these things, but that's not a problem. I'm okay. You're very far away from being restored when you're in that situation. But when you get to this and say, I've messed up. I'm a sinner. I've been involved in pornography. I'm involved in I drink. I do these things. I don't want to anymore. You're close to a point where you can say, I repent of this. I want to turn from this. I want to commit my life to following Christ. And with his help, I want to ask God each day to help me overcome these temptations in my life. And when you do get to that point of saving faith, God's going to give you a spirit. He's going to give you the ability to overcome these things. He did it in my life. He can do it in yours as well. As you're in the word daily, as you seek help from the authorities in your life, as you make no provision for the flesh, as you alter your life differently, you're going to be able to overcome these things. So it's never too late. God is a God of second chances. There is always hope. Even though God does forgive and he does restore us, there still are consequences to decisions we make in life. He forgives us and restores us, but it doesn't mean he takes away the consequences of the sinful decisions we've made. He doesn't erase the results of our decisions. So in other words, if you have a child out of wedlock and you know it's wrong and you repent of that and trust in Christ, he doesn't take the child away. You're still going to have that child for the rest of your life, which, which is a blessing, by the way, but still, it may be not when you want to have a child. You may not be able to financially support that child. It may be a huge burden to your life. So he doesn't take the consequences away. If you have an abortion, you can never get past the fact that you've had an abortion. God forgives you, yes, when you truly repent, but you still had an abortion. If you drink alcohol and use drugs, you will always have the consequences. Maybe you have physical consequences of a bad liver or health consequences of using it. If you marry an unbeliever, the Bible says to only marry in the Lord. If you marry an unbeliever and you repent of that, trust in Christ and go in a whole new direction, you're still married to an unbeliever and he doesn't want you to get divorced. So just remember that while God forgives us, he doesn't necessarily erase the consequences of the decisions that we made. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, I'm seeing some head nods there. Good. Okay, a few more questions. Mr. Wheaton, you talked about obeying authorities, but you have no idea what my parents are like. They are divorced, remarried. I go back and forth between two homes. There's lots of screaming and drinking, and none of them care about Jesus or care about me. How do you expect me to obey them or honor my authorities? Well, here's what it says in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the answer to this question is, 
While humans and parents make many mistakes, there's no perfect parents in the world, God never makes mistakes. He purposely gave you the parents you, you have, and he is working through your, even your unsaved parents to sanctify you and glorify himself through your own family situation. If it's not one of these idyllic Christian families where both of your parents are saved, who knows? Maybe he's going to use you to lead your parents to a saving faith in Christ. So try to obey and try to honor your parents unless they tell you to do something that contradicts Scripture, like lying or cheating or something like that. You can't obey that. You must obey God rather than men when they call you something sinful. And if you don't want to do what your parents tell you, if you think that's not the right thing to do, then graciously suggest a creative alternative. But I think the overarching goal here is to honor your parents, if at all possible, even from the difficult family situations that I'm sure maybe some of you come from. Okay, now an apologetic question. Apologetic is how do we defend the faith? This is something that you might get challenged with in college. How do we know the Bible is the one true holy book? You know, your friends might just say this to you at college. Well, what, I mean, you talk about, you always say the Bible says, well, how do you know the Bible is true? Let me give an answer to this from an online site that I thought spoke to this question really well. How do we know the Bible is true? From Answers in Genesis, a great apologetics and creation ministry. It's a good website by, for you to write down, by the way, answersingenesis.org. If you have questions about the faith, you can, you can go there for good answers. The truth of the Bible is obvious to anyone willing to fairly investigate it. The Bible is uniquely self-consistent and extraordinarily authentic. It has changed the lives of millions of people who have placed their faith in Christ. It has been confirmed countless times by archaeology and other sciences. It possesses divine insight into the nature of the universe and has made correct predictions about distant future events with perfect accuracy. When Christians read the Bible, they cannot help but recognize the voice of their creator. The Bible claims to be the word of God, and it demonstrates this claim by making knowledge possible. It is the standard of standards. The proof of the Bible is that unless its truth is presupposed, we couldn't prove anything at all. In other words, all truth that we know is really based on the assumption that there is a God and he's revealed himself to us in the world. We know there's a God. If you see that boom, God's not dead. We know there's a God because we look around at creation and we know that things that are created must have a creator. You don't look at this piano and say, oh, it just happened by accident. You know that someone created and built that piano. It's the same thing with creation around us. It's an organized, ordered creation. We know it just couldn't happen by accident. We know inside of us, not only through creation, we know inside of us through our conscience there is a God. We, how do we know right from wrong? How does every person in every society know that taking another person's life, murder, is wrong? Who told them that? Animals don't know that. You know, when a lion goes and kills a zebra, there's no problem with that. He's not accused of, of murder and not hauled before the courts. He's allowed to do that. We know he's an animal, but we, have, we are different. We are a higher created being. Someone, God, has put inside of us the ability to know right from wrong. Now, we can shun that out and harden our hearts to right and wrong, which a lot of people do, but we still have that conscience inside of us. Creation, conscience, and the Word of God reveals itself to be the one true holy book. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but that's just a little, little thumbnail sketch of that, that uh, question. Next question. We have a couple more to go. If God is all-knowing, here's another question you might get in college. Why did he create Adam and Eve knowing they would sin? 
Here's another question from an online apologetic site from Theologica. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin in the Garden of Eden. He knew that. With that knowledge in hand, God still created Adam and Eve because creating them and ordaining the fall, the fall of man when they corrupted the universe, was part of God's sovereign plan for creation to manifest his glory in all its fullness. In other words, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, with the capacity to sin. Not to sin, but with the capacity. He gave them free choice as he gives all of us free choice. But he knew that they would choose badly, but he had a plan for that. If you want to think in terms of why the world is the way it is, this is a good way, a good framework for what's taking place. This explains what's going on in the world. God created the world perfectly. Adam and Eve fell and brought sin into the world and corrupted the world. That's why people die. The third point is God is redeeming people out of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And eventually God will restore the world, recreate the world actually, to a new heaven and a new earth. That is the, the big meta-narrative for why, what takes place on around the world. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And just as an aside, this is what the gospel is. God created you to know him, to, to be in relationship with him, but you fell, you sinned against him. But the good news is Christ is redeeming people out of the world. You can be made with, right with Christ through being redeemed. And eventually in the future, you will be glorified, be restored to the state that God originally created you. A very helpful way of understanding what's going on in the world. Next question. How do you think we as Christians should treat homosexuals besides just the typical love the sinner and hate the sin? This issue of homosexuality when you go off to college is going to be thrust in front of you whether you want it to be or not. Our whole society is changing. Where it used to be in society, we thought of homosexuality, just as Christians always have, but even society as whole thought of homosexuality as immoral or sexually errant okay, even perverse. This has changed very much, in the, very quickly in the last 15 years in, in our culture, and it's changing even quicker now. The family's being redefined as not just a man and a woman having children, it's defined as, you know, a man and a man having children, a woman and a woman. This has been very much redefined. And as you go off to college, especially if you go to a secular college, even some liberal Christian colleges, you're going to face this, and you're going to need to know how to defend scripture when it comes to homosexuality because the bible is clear on homosexuality that it is a sexual sin just like any other sin outside of the the marriage covenant is whether it's heterosexual adultery or heterosexual fornication sex before marriage homosexuality is again another form of sex outside of marriage and the bible makes this very clear in many places first corinthians i think chapter six christ talked in matthew 19 about a family or a marriage is between a man and a woman so this is going to be, you're going to be pressured into trying to not only just tolerating someone else's lifestyle choice, but affirming it. Maybe some of you heard recently that the president of the company that makes Firefox, the web browser, you all familiar with Firefox web browser? Well, the, the president of that company had just become the president. He was the CEO. And within about a month of being the CEO, he was forced out. What was his crime for being forced out? Because he had donated $1,000 to a campaign in California called Proposition 8, like back in 2008, to support marriages being between a man and a woman. And he, they wouldn't allow him. He was forced out because of that, just holding that view. In other words, you're not allowed anymore 
according to our society, to hold to a view that the only right form of marriage is between a man and a woman. So, how should we treat homosexuals? We should treat them like Christ would. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw Christ's glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to say, this is what the Bible says, not what our own opinions are. This is what the Bible says about homosexuality, and we need to do it with grace, always opening up an avenue for people to believe in the gospel. We should treat homosexuals like any other person practicing sin with grace and truth. The Bible says this, and the good news is that. It's truth and it's grace. Does everyone understand that? It's a good way to be able to be. This is something you will face. We're down to our last question or so here. Do I wish I could go back and change anything? And the answer to that question is yes. I do wish I could go back and change something. I wish that I had made a decision to live for Christ and glorify him at an earlier age in my life. I wish that I had prepared myself for marriage at a younger age. And you're all 17, 18 years old. Maybe you can't believe this, but you might be married within a few, four years. That's not very long from now. And so I would really encourage you to prepare yourself to be the wife or the husband that God wants you to be. Even if you don't get married for maybe 10 years from now, still think about in terms of if you have a desire in your heart to be married someday, start thinking about preparing yourself and studying Scripture as what, what it says to be a godly husband or godly wife. I wish I'd honor my parents more. I told you that I'd run up against them and I wanted to be the, the authority in my own life. I wish I'd honor them more and I have asked their forgiveness for this these times in my life when I did, but you won't regret the fact if you honor your parents and your parents will respect you for doing so. Last question. If you were my coach, what things would you write on my postcard, like we talked about at Wimbledon, before I head off to college? And what I would write on your postcard, if I can just find the answer to this question, I would say, first of all, read University of Destruction. We are going to give you this book. I mean, free book. How can you turn that down? I'll sign it for you, personalize it for you. I would read this book sometime before you go off to college because a lot of the things we talked about in the last few days actually aren't even in the book. This is more meant to be a Cliff Notes quick version of it, but there are other topics we talk about in the book, as I mentioned, the dating chapter and a lot of other things in the book that I think will be helpful and will help you to slowly internalize what's in that book. Number two, there's a free University of Destruction study guide on my website, davidwheaton.com. You can go there. You can download it for free, and it goes chapter by chapter through the book and just helps you personalize and get those, uh, some of the principles in the book more fully ingrained into you. Number three, start working on your spiritual GPA every day. Set aside a time, make a commitment to spend at least five minutes, maybe just reading one chapter of Scripture every day, and watch how much that transforms you and renews your mind on a daily basis. You will be amazed. The Word does not re- return void. Understand, start thinking about peers and maybe look at your current friends and start using those, some of those discernment things we talked about in the last session, how to choose your friends. And understand how the authority issue works of protecting and directing you. Those things are all in the book you'll come across when you read them. Number four, you know, we're only as strong as those who teach us. You know, it's, it's hard for a, a student to become wiser than his teacher. You can't teach what you don't know. And so I would really encourage you to discover and find a couple of really sound Bible teachers that you can be taught by. I'll give you a couple of recommendations. I love John MacArthur. 
I just think he, if I had to say, if someone asked me who has made the biggest influence in your life, let's say outside your parents and your family, I would say John MacArthur. He's a Bible teacher out of California. He's one of the most respected teachers. He just has made a big impact in my life. So I'd recommend him first and foremost. Others that have been very good are someone like Pastor Steve Lawson. Um, there's many others. But trying to find good, sound Bible teachers is a very key thing. And put them on your iPod. Listen to a 30-minute message on your iPod, you know, once a week, just to get some good teaching. That will change the way you think and uh, help you immensely spiritually. Here's another one. Stay informed about the world around you. One thing I find when I interact with college students is that they're kind of totally oblivious to what's going on in the world. I mean, you know, I could mention something like, uh, have you heard what's going on in the Middle East right now? No, what's going on in the Middle East? Well, there's like kind of world-altering events going on in the Middle East with the, the transfer from more dictatorships to, to Muslim-led countries over there. You know, know what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. The Russia's uh, uh, threatening Ukraine. And just be aware of what's going on in the world. This will help you sharpen your worldview and know how to think when you come up against these things in your classes. And the last thing I'd recommend is I put on your postcard would be to spend time with strong Christian friends. It's very hard to be an individual Christian. You know, Christ sent out the disciples in, in twos. He didn't send them out to be loners on themselves. You're not saved to be an individual. You're saved to be part of a body of Christ. And so that's what I would say. Those things I would put on your, your postcard to be fundamentals. You know, in conclusion to the four parts we've done, there was a student who went to Dartmouth College. He was a Christian. And I was on the Focus on the Family's radio broadcast about my book with him. His name was Noah. And someone asked Noah, why even bother serving God in high school or college? You say, it's a great question. And I think a verse that speaks to this is in Matthew 15, 8. These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, you know, it's a matter of the heart. If our heart is about serving God, then our question, that question really isn't a good question because it's not about what we can do and get away with in life, but it's about who we love and therefore who we are going to serve. There really is going to be a battle for your soul as you go off to college. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to prepare you for that. The world around you, your flesh and the devil, and their three pillars of peril are perilous. It's going to be tough as this, this quote from the book Pilgrim's Progress says, the hill or college, though high, I covet to ascend. You want to be an overcomer, but the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck apart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. The answer is, how can you have a great time in college? How can you take advantage of your opportunities? How can you be a victorious Christian? How can you leave college with no regrets? Well, number one, get on a mission to be an overcomer. Number two, Become a possessing Christian. Don't just be a professing Christian. Know the scouting report. Read the book and get the scouting report. Execute your game plan under pressure. Because when you do that, you will be able to say, not like Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, he said that famous song, I can't get no satisfaction, because he didn't know Jesus. He wasn't living his life the right way. He couldn't get no satisfaction. But when you know Jesus, you'll be able to leave college and have him say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, imagine that. Your Savior telling you, job well done. It's going to be a tough job, 
but you can certainly do it with Christ's help. I thank you for listening the last couple of days. I hope you're able to, to get a lot out of this. I hope you can be overcomers in college. And I would be more than glad for you to email me or contact me at any time during college if you're in a difficult class and you have difficult questions and you need answers or resources. Remember, the biblical worldview is the most defendable worldview of all. If you ever want to get in contact with me, you can contact me through my website, davidwheaton.com. You can contact me through our radio website, thechristianworldview.org. And I'd be glad to interact with you and point you in the right direction to getting resources or help that will help you during your journey through college. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for this, this time and we're thankful for the attentiveness of these seniors. It's been a lot of information over the last two days. Just a lot to digest and think about. And uh, no doubt, it's impossible to be able to just take all of this in and retain even a majority of it. But we pray there's just a few things that they would take away from these four sessions that would help them in some way. These aren't my ideas, Lord. This is, this is from your mind, your word applied to our lives. And so we would pray over the summer here as these students graduate from high school and think about the prospect of going off to college that they wouldn't be intimidated. They know they serve a big God that can help them, that will help them overcome anything they might face in college and beyond. And they would start thinking about these important decisions going back to the very first thing we talked about, that the decisions we make between the ages of 15 and 23 are the most important decisions in our life. And life is just merely a series of one decision after another. And we pray that their decisions be informed on your word. They would be motivated by a love of you, Lord, and and a reverential fear and awe of you, Father. And they'd always want to love and fear you more than they'd love and fear anything else. And we pray that you would give them your grace to be overcomers. Grace is not only unmerited favor, but it's you, Lord, giving us the supernatural power to do your will. We all need that in our life. We pray that you would, your grace and your blessing would be upon them. And we pray in the name of your matchless Son, who is the one mediator between God and men, the one who can make us right with you. We pray in his name. Amen.